Welcome to another edition of Pen Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm Brad Soboleski, your host. Now, today I'm going to talk about a rarely seen disease that does have clinical implications in the emergency department, and that's rabies. I'm going to be 100% honest, I've never seen a case of rabies, and unless I go to work overseas, I actually don't think that I'll ever see one. Uh, where I work now in our county in Ohio, there hasn't been a case in over 50 to 60 years. But you will see children bitten by some sort of creature, so we need to know when we should worry about rabies, which animals are highest risk, when to do prophylaxis, and more. So the first question that, that came to my mind was, what does rabies actually look like in a human being? In short, it's bad. It, it's uniformly fatal. Um, there are select cases that uh, have been treated successfully using what's called the Milwaukee Protocol and an induced coma, but generally rabies does very, very bad things to the central nervous system. Most patients die within two weeks after the onset of coma. Here's the specifics. So for up to one week, you get prodrome, and this includes very nonspecific symptoms like fever, chills, malaise, uh, myalgias, vomiting, headache, photophobia. I mean, this is like the flu, right? Patients can have paresthesias radiating from the wound site. This may actually be specific for rabies and just localized pain due to the wound response and, and injury. Encephalitic rabies encompasses 80% of the cases, and again, it starts after the first week. This is quote-unquote furious rabies. It presents with fever, hydrophobia, this pathologic fear of drinking water, uh, terrible pharyngeal spasms often triggered after just a puff or a draft of air, the opthistotonus, the facial grimace, um, and hyperactivity, which later leads to paralysis, coma, and death. Paralytic rabies is the other 20%, and this is an ascending paralysis, kind of like Guillain-Barre syndrome. Initially, patients develop flaccid paralysis, most prominent in the bitten limb, and then it spreads, either symmetrically or asymmetrically. They can have fasciculations, they lose deep tendon reflexes, and then ultimately, um, very important motor controls just fall off the table. So ultimately, if you are worried about rabies, it's because they've been bitten by an animal. And which animals are highest risk for rabies? Well, it depends on where you live. So in the Midwest, skunks in the South, foxes, along the East Coast, raccoons, and if you're in Puerto Rico, the mongoose. So really reference the CDC to know which animals are highest at risk. Overall, most cases of rabies are acquired through exposure to saliva from a bite. So per the CDC, raccoons continue to be the most frequently reported rabbit wildlife species, 30% during the most recent report in 2014. This is followed closely by bats, skunks, and then foxes. You know, it's usually bites, but you can actually be exposed to aerosolized virus in bat caves or labs, and no, that's not where Batman works. So if you have a kid that's exposed to one of those animals, and the animal is not able to be captured and studied, well, then they're probably at risk for rabies, even though the risk is very, very small, and you should err towards the side of being conservative and treating with prophylaxis. So... Most of your patients will have never been vaccinated against rabies. If they have, well, that's probably because they're unlucky. And so starting at day zero, which is when you're seeing them, this is the recommended regimen. 
So you give rabies immune globulin, or RIG. The dose is 20 units per kilogram, and as much of the full dose as feasible should be infiltrated around the wounds. Give the remaining dose IM at a separate site. So if you've got a bite to the face, you're not going to be able to put a large amount of rabies immune globulin there. A larger bite to the leg, well, that's more feasible. Then you also give the rabies vaccine. This is the human diploid cell vaccine, the HDCV, or a purified chick embryo cell vaccine, PCECV. It's 1 ml IM in the deltoid. And this is done on days 0, 3, 7, and 14. I remember these dates as first half score tallies from uh, an NFL football game. Now, previously vaccinated patients, they shouldn't get rig, and then they get the vaccine on days 0 and 3, so a shorter regimen. Patients with immune compromise, they should get five doses of vaccine, and this is days 0, 3, 7, 14, and 28, in addition to the rig that you gave them on day 1. I've posted an algorithm on penblog.com that can help you decide when to employ post-exposure prophylaxis. So ultimately, the story of the child being encountered by a skunk or a raccoon or a bat is actually less common than that of them being bitten by a stray dog or another pet. So rabies cases among domestic animals are very, very rare in the United States. Dogs are more than likely to have it along the U.S.-Mexico border, but overall, there's actually more rabid cats than dogs being reported in the U.S. This is probably due to vaccination laws and a greater number of free-range kitties. So ultimately, the odds of getting rabies after being bitten by a dog in a public location or in someone's house are actually really, really low. Bacterial wound infections are far more likely. Animals will uniformly get sick and die within 10 days, usually 5 to 7 days, once the rabies virus moves from their central nervous system to the salivary glands. So, if a kid gets bitten by an animal, like a dog, cat, or ferret, they should be confined for 10 days. If this is possible, you don't need to start the rabies series. Any sign of illness in the animal should be evaluated by a vet, and any ill animal should be euthanized. Then, here's kind of the grotesque part, the head of that animal is shipped under refrigeration to a lab certified to test for rabies. But if this animal survives for 10 days, well, then it didn't have rabies virus in its saliva when it bit the kid, so the kid doesn't need to get the rabies series overall. So, if a child is bitten, you should find out A, is the animal able to be located, and B, can it be sequestered either by the owner or, preferably, animal control. So, obviously, patients exposed to symptomatic animals should get post-exposure prophylaxis. Uh, if the exposure to the patient was the head and neck, it can worsen in four to five days, you might have to make a decision a little bit sooner. And when in doubt, go ahead and do the prophylaxis. You can always stop it if the animal is negative. Now, if the animal can't be located, you're going to have to have a discussion about the risks and benefits with the family. So, since dogs, cats, and ferrets are required to be vaccinated, at least in the U.S., inquiring as to whether or not they're up to date on their shots is a mandatory part of the history. Have the parent call the owner of the animal, if at all possible, to find out their vaccine history while you're evaluating him in the emergency department. And you should ask whether or not the bite was provoked. Remember, most dog bites occur when the dog is approached by a child or during handling and feeding. Obviously, rabid animals are more likely to bite in an unprovoked fashion. So in summary, rabies is very, very rare. Almost all of you will never see it clinically but you will encounter a patient that is bitten by an animal, 
or encounters an animal that may be high risk for rabies. So you have to know when to deploy the rabies series. Again, in summary, rabies immune globulin, give as much as feasible around the wound site at 20 units per kilo, give the rest IM separately. Then the rabies vaccine for previously unvaccinated patients, one ML IM in the deltoid on days zero, three, seven, and 14. I'd love to continue the conversation online. I'm at PEMTweets at Twitter. And also you can read more great educational content on PEMblog.com. This has been Brad Sobolewski with another edition of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast.